Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 24, Free Energy. In this episode, we continue with physical chemistry from a brilliant but obscure American to catalysis and the pH scale. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. While all this study of gases and reaction equilibria was going on, an American, Josiah Willard Gibbs, wrote a whole series of papers between 1876 and and 1878, on intense mathematics concerning chemical reactions. Gibbs invented the idea of free energy, which mathematically includes heat and entropy, and is easier to measure than entropy alone. Using his mathematics, Gibbs found that any time a reaction happens, the free energy of the system alters. For all spontaneous reactions free energy falls while energy increases, following the laws of thermodynamics. The heat content changes in accordance with how much the free energy falls and entropy rises. As we guess from chemistry, most of the time in reactions heat is evolved, making the flask or container warmer. So the heat content of the system falls as entropy increases. Sometimes there are occasional reactions where free energy falls, but heat content increases as the system absorbs energy from the outside world. Another result Gibbs found is that as concentrations of reactants and products changed in a reaction system, the free energy changed. We can go back to our generic reversible reaction, A plus B makes C plus D. Imagine that the free energy of A plus B is almost, but not quite the same, as the free energy of C plus D. If you change the concentration of all chemicals A, B, C, and D in the system, that alteration might just be enough to increase the free energy of A plus B slightly over C plus D at certain concentrations, but lower the free energy of A plus B slightly under C plus D at other concentrations. That change in relative free energy would be enough to tilt the reaction forward at some concentrations and reverse in others. And Gibbs went further. The rate of the change in free energy is called the chemical potential. Gibbs found that the chemical potential is the ultimate driving force of a reaction. Chemical reactions go from high chemical potential to low chemical potential spontaneously. At a minimum of chemical potential, the equation reaches equilibrium. Suppose again we start with reactants A and B. As the reaction of A with B proceeds to form C and D, the chemical potential falls something like water flows downhill to minimum gravitational potential spontaneously. And Gibbs went even further 
to look at equilibria between different phases of matter, solid, liquid, and gaseous, in a chemical system. Water and steam, which are two phases of the same component, can exist simultaneously in equilibrium at a variety of temperatures and pressures. But if you hold the water-steam system at a constant temperature, you automatically reduce the possible pressures to only one value. You can have water, steam, and ice, three phases of one component, simultaneously at equilibrium, but only at one pressure and temperature. For the water-ice-steam system, that pressure and temperature is called the triple point. Which is 0.01 degrees Celsius and 0.06 atmospheres pressure. Different chemicals have different triple points. Mercury's triple point, where solid, liquid, and vapor mercury are in equilibrium, is at minus 38.8 degrees Celsius and 1.6 millionths of an atmosphere. What Gibbs discovered was an equation called the phase rule. Which you can use to predict how to change the temperature, pressure, and concentration of components in your chemical system. The phase rule is vitally important, especially in metallurgy and chemical engineering. For example, in the creation of alloys, you need to know all the crystalline phases of all the components and mixtures of the alloy. Often, the various phases and composition are graphed on a phase diagram. As W. C. Dampier notes in his book *A History of Science*, such diagrams enable us to trace the connection between the composition, temperature adjustment, and physical properties, and the results of tempering iron and steel. Gibbs thus basically invented the study of chemical thermodynamics in extreme detail. One problem is, like Guldberg and Vage of Norway, he published in an obscure journal. Though he wrote his papers in English, they were printed in the Transactions of the Connecticut Academy, which no one in Europe read, and Europe was the center of chemistry in the 19th century. I will add that chemists were not used to so much differential and integral calculus, 700 equations at that time either. So it took quite a while for chemists to digest all that he had worked out. Another person central to the founding of physical chemistry was a Russian-German chemist named Wilhelm Ostwald, whom we had heard about in the last episode with Svante Arrhenius. Ostwald himself was an early European to realize how important Gibbs's research was, and he translated Gibbs's papers in 1892 into German. Ostwald also used Gibbs's research to study that mysterious phenomenon in chemistry called catalysis. We first encountered catalysis a century earlier in the 1790s with Elizabeth Fulham. Who examined oxidation in the presence of water, and then finally clearly recognized Berzelius a couple of decades later, and who is credited with coining the actual name of the phenomenon as catalytic power. Catalysis is, in brief, a way to speed up a chemical reaction when you add a bit of another substance, 
but that substance seems not to actually get used up in the reaction. Examples were known by Ostwald's time. For example, if you add hydrogen to oxygen, not a whole lot happens, but toss in powdered platinum, and the gases combine fast. Dubreiner of Triads of Elements fame discovered this. Acid also catalyzes the reaction of some organic molecules into smaller ones, like the breakdown of sucrose we encountered earlier too. Both platinum and acid remain in the container after the reaction. Using Gibbs's ideas and Hess's law that the enthalpy of reaction is the same no matter the path of the reaction, Ostwald noted. That catalysts had to combine with the reactants to form an intermediate chemical in the process. The intermediate breaks apart thereafter to make the final products plus the original catalyst. The intermediate was necessary; otherwise, the uncatalyzed reaction goes slowly, and sometimes so slowly you cannot detect any change. The intermediate's value was that it lowers the necessary activation energy. For the reaction to go forward, lower activation energy means the reaction takes place more easily. Chemists still accept this model of catalysis, and the growth of the field of biochemistry, which is the study of chemicals used in living creatures, was helped immensely by Ostwald's view of catalysis. Wilhelm Kühne, a German physiologist. In 1878, called these biochemical compounds enzymes. Ostwald's view explains how proteins work as catalysts, that is, enzymes. On the other hand, Ostwald was one of the few holdouts on the reality of atoms. The idea of atoms worked nicely on paper, but in his view, inventing models for which no real evidence existed is ridiculous. So we move now in the late 19th century to ask if atoms are real. Let's go back briefly to 1827, when a Scottish botanist by the name of Robert Brown was peering under a microscope at pollen grains. Brown observed that the pollen grains were constantly in motion, always vibrating and shifting around. Maybe this was some kind of perpetual motion, which is disallowed by the laws of thermodynamics. William Ramsey, whom we heard about for his later discovery of, in his day, were called inert gases, suggested in the 1870s that this Brownian motion was called by tiny particles in water bumping against the pollen grains. But not until 1905 was the question of so-called Brownian motion fully answered, and by none other than German-Swiss scientist Albert Einstein. He showed that the motion of pollen, dust, or other small bits could be modeled by molecules of water randomly bumping against the bits, and he provided an equation for this model to calculate the size of the water molecules. Several years later, a Frenchman, Jean Perrin, did the measurements and gave an actual size for water molecules. This evidence was enough for nearly all scientists thereafter. To accept that water molecules, and by extension all molecules, are real, even Ostwald finally accepted that atomic theory is correct. <laughs> by 1899, Henri Le Chatelier 
translated Gibbs papers into French, and knowledge of chemical thermodynamics finally spread throughout Europe. Le Chatelier is known for his 1888 research on chemical equilibrium, which is now called Le Chatelier's Principle. The principle is that any time you change one parameter away from equilibrium, the other parameters readjust themselves to try to return the system back to equilibrium. For example, suppose you have a chemical equilibrium which you squeeze down on with extra pressure. The system will try to reduce its volume to reduce that extra pressure. So if you have a dissociation of a gas molecule into two gas molecules, the equilibrium shifts back toward a single molecule to ease the pressure. If you heat up the system, the equilibrium tries to absorb the heat by adjusting the reaction forward or backward. Gibbs's mathematics nicely explained Le Chatelier's principle. Another German chemist, Walter Nernst, used thermodynamics to explain electrochemistry. One of the conclusions he came to was that the current drawn from a battery can help one to find the change in the free energy occurring in the battery's chemical reactions. An interesting aside about Walter Nernst was that he worked on creating an electric grand piano in the 1920s and marketed in the early 1930s called the Neo-Bechstein. The mechanics inside the piano were built by the C. Bechstein Company, but the electronics were designed by none other than the Siemens Company, that firm started by a soldier who was confined for dueling, as I mentioned in an earlier episode. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. By the 1880s, the physics of chemistry, that is, physical chemistry, had begun. Ostwald recognized this and worked with Van Hoff and Arrhenius to found a new journal in which to publicize new physical chemistry research. The journal, Zeitschrift für Physikalische Chemie, founded in early 1887, still exists today with the subtitle International Journal of Research in Physical Chemistry and Chemical Physics. Interestingly, the Zeitschrift was divided during the Cold War from 1954 to 1991 into East and West German editions. Not long after Arrhenius's ideas began to gain support, it was realized that water does dissociate, though very, very slightly, based on its extremely weak, but more than zero, electrical conductivity. The reversible ionic dissociation of water is, of course, most interesting to chemists given that life processes are water-based. Water's dissociation is written as H2O, forward and back arrows, 
gives H plus plus OH minus. That is, water breaks apart into a hydrogen cation and a hydroxide anion. But the reaction remains almost entirely to the left side of the equation in pure water. Now we recall Guldberg and Vagas' law of mass action and write the concentrations with an equilibrium constant lowercase k. K equals concentration of hydrogen ion times concentration of hydroxide ion divided by water concentration. Because the concentration of pure water itself is practically constant at a fixed temperature, even with the tiny, tiny amount of dissociation, we can ignore it. This is a common simplification technique in science, getting rid of parts of an equation that effectively don't matter. Then the water equilibrium can be rewritten as K equals concentration of hydrogen ion times concentration of hydroxide ion. It turns out that this K is about 10 to the minus 14, and water has to be electrically neutral, so the positive hydrogen ions and the negative hydroxide ion concentrations must be equal. Therefore, the hydrogen ion concentration and the hydroxide ion concentration both must be 10 to the minus 7. Chemists by that time recognized that the concentration of hydrogen ions is a good descriptor of how acidic or basic a solution is. The equilibrium constant K was naturally constant, so as a solution becomes more acidic, the hydrogen ion concentration rises, but the hydroxide ion concentration has to fall to keep K the same. The more acidic, the higher the H+, and the more basic, the higher the OH-. Like an ideal gas in which pressure and volume are inversely related, the dissociation products of water are also inversely related in acids and bases. How to denote easily this amount of acidity was not agreed upon, though. Perhaps the closest to this came Edward Salm in 1907, who set up a table with columns from 1 to 14, corresponding to 10 to the minus 1 to 10 to the minus 14, listing pH indicators, which are chemicals with particular colors at particular concentrations of hydrogen ions in each column. But then a Danish chemist by the name of Søren Sørensen, who was the director of the chemistry laboratory at Carlsberg Brewery, came up with an easier way to denote acids and bases in 1909. He suggested that the power of 10 was just awkward, and just use the exponent itself from the hydrogen ion concentration. Thus, pure water, with a hydrogen ion concentration of 10 to the minus 7, would have a pH equal to 7. A strong acid, with a hydrogen ion concentration of maybe 10 to the minus 1, would have a pH equal to 1. A strong base, with a hydrogen ion concentration of, say, 10 to the minus 13, would have a pH equal to 13. That is the pH system we use to this day for measuring pool water, acid rain, beer, blood, soil for plants, and so on. The pH system was widely accepted in Europe, especially after a German chemist, Leonor Michaelis, 
who was working on exactly the same idea but lost out to Sorensen, published a book describing Sorensen's scheme. After Michaelis migrated to the USA in 1926, the pH system gradually gained usage in America, especially after American chemist Arnold Beckman invented a portable pH meter for measurements out in the field in 1935. As a guest on this episode, I've asked Vincent Falcone, head brewer of City State Brewing in Washington, D.C., to talk briefly about the importance and testing of pH in brewing beer. All right, my name is Vince Falcone. I've been brewing professionally since 1990. I have a degree in biotechnology, an associate degree in biotechnology from Hawking College. And I have worked probably or helped or consulted for over 25 different professional breweries across the country in the last 30 years. And so I started my career、uh, apprenticing. And back then I was taught that the pH of your wort. Going into your fermenter for yeast composition needs to be between, I would say, 5.2 and, and 6. And it can't really ever change because the yeast needs a certain environment to operate in. And that's what I, I took as verbatim and the, the gospel、um, up until the last few years with the advent of kettle sours. And so I've pitched、uh, Chico yeast into a pH of under four in a sour and had a vigorous and no issue fermentation. Now, I do not re pitch that yeast. However, I do believe you could re pitch it sour to sour. So, as far as the pH of wort for yeast fermentation, A lot of what I learned and a lot of what the Germans and the Japanese studied over the last hundred years is all good science. However, I do not think the pH really matters of the wart because, you know, if you're going to pitch wart into a pH that is into the seven range, even though I've never done that, you would have to add like sodium, a lot of salt, you would have to drive the equation to the right. Which I don't recommend doing because you're going to end up with a lot of、uh, chemical flavors from the excess sodium. The sodium, when it's heated, will combine with the water and form sodium hydroxide in your actual wort. However, I feel, even though I've never really experimented with a high pH wort,、um, I feel the yeast would metabolize it and have no issues. So I don't think pH. Is a big issue in your wort、uh, that you're going to ferment into、um, because I've, I've seen, a, you know, I, I mean, again, I've had some sours down to 3.7 and they fermented out in four days and just like everything else. Now, the pH of your boiling wort is a big issue and this is where, and your mash. So I'm going to say this about your mash. I know a lot of brewers use computer software. To help facilitate their brewing schedules. And Beersmith is one of them. And Beersmith has you go through a whole modification process to add various different salts to bring your pH down to 5.2 generally. So you can use that, and, and I'm not here to say that they're wrong. However, the optimum pH of alpha amylase, which is your primary 
uh, enzyme that you are activating at between 148 and 156 degrees is 5.6. So if you have the mash at 5.2, you are actually hindering your enzymatic activity. And if you want to do this for a certain reason to have more unfermentable sugars, that's not the correct way to do it. You would want to add dextrins that are unfermentables and not modify your pH. So I don't agree with all that. Here's another thing about a very low pH wort. The lower the pH of your wort, so your wort, when you're boiling, your mash, uh, it should be 5.6. So the wort, as it's getting into the kettle, will be close to 6. And that is perfectly normal. If you add kettle salts, calciums, uh, any other kettle salt, to lower the pH of your boiling wort, which some brewers will do because they think that they, it's a kettle additive with the hops, which in, in a lot of cases is, is not an issue if you're adding uh, very small amounts of calcium. But if you add excessive amounts of calcium sulfate, and lower the pH of your wort, what you're doing is releasing excessive hydrogen into the wort that will form DMS, dimethyl sulfide. So the lower the pH of your boiling wort, the more and higher instances of dimethyl sulfide that you are creating. Again, you can look all this up on Google. It's pretty basic brewing science. However, it's something that in the homebrew community they don't really have access or they haven't bothered to read German textbooks. So three things, the wort of your ferment, you know, your, your, the wort that you cast into your fermenter really can be any, it will vary from six and a half down to three and a half and I have seen no difference in uh, fermentation. The wort of your mash should not be dropped uh, into the 5.2 range. All those minerals you will add, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, sulfur, all those are active in the malt itself. The malt possesses all those minerals and so the malt itself without any additives in a neutral pH water will drive the equation itself. You do not need to uh, excessively modify your water as long as it's uh, between six and a half and seven and a half. So that's the second thing. And then your boiling wort should not have excessive low pH um, because that is, it will produce excessive amounts of DMS. Yeah. So in a lot of these hazy IPAs that are very aggressively hopped um, and dry hopped, they, they develop something called a hop creep. I think a lot of the hop creep is due more toward DMS and a low pH of your boiling wort than a hop breakdown. But that's something that should be studied. I hope you have a great day and thanks for listening. Thanks. Did you notice the pH values he discussed concerning beer? They were all acidic, pH lower than 7. In our next episode, we finish up with major developments in 19th century physical chemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.